0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello, and welcome to Security Unlocked, a new podcast from Microsoft where we unlock insights from the latest in news and research from across Microsoft's security engineering and operations teams. I'm Nick Villingham.
1: And I'm Natalia Godilla. In each episode, we'll discuss the latest stories from Microsoft Security, deep dive into the newest threat intel, research, and data science.
0: And profile some of the fascinating people working on artificial intelligence in Microsoft Security. If you enjoy the podcast, have a request for a topic you'd like covered, or have some feedback on how we can make the podcast better,
1: please contact us at securityunlocked at microsoft.com or via Microsoft Security on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Hi, Nick. Welcome to another episode. How's it going?
0: Hi, Natalia. I'm a, I'm a little angry, actually. I'm a little cranky. I don't know if I've said on the podcast before, I live on a sort of a small farm about 30 minutes east of Seattle, and we have, we've we got some farm animals. We've got piglets. Recently, they were born in the spring. And this morning, the piglets found our delivery of fresh fruit and vegetables from a, a CSA, and they, they ate them all. Um, they ate, like, $75 worth of, like, beautiful organic fruit and veggies that was meant to last us for the next, like, month. So, uh, I'm having pork for Thanksgiving.
1: <laughs> Those are the brattiest pigs. Yeah, well, we
0: initially, their names, when they were born, they were super sweet, and we called them June and July, or my my daughters called them that. But we've renamed them to Beavis and Butthead, <laughs> because they are stupid jerks.
1: Wow, that's harsh. Do
0: you think they listen to the podcast? I have given both of them uh, iPhones. <laughs> Apart from that, I'm good. How are you, Natalia?
1: Wow. I mean, I can't compete with that story. I'm I'm definitely not at war with one of my piglets.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're in Boston, Massachusetts. I think you're in like, you're not like downtown. You're in more of the leafy green sort of oldie worldie part, aren't you?
1: I am. I'm near Cambridge, dealing with equally bratty but amusing animals. While I don't have the farm setup you have, I have the Somerville turkey.
0: The Somerville turkey—that sounds like a—is that like a, <laughs> a ghost of a turkey?
1: <laughs> right. It sounds like the headline to a scary movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Like it's like a, polter- a turkey-shaped poltergeist. What is that?
1: It's it's just the turkey that causes mayhem in our in our little neck of the city.
0: Is the turkey's name Somerville, or is that like the neighborhood?
1: Oh, that's the neighborhood.
0: Does the turkey have a name?
1: I don't know if it deserves (laughs) a (laughs) name.
0: And what does it do? How does it cause mayhem? Like, like, is it like tipping over trash cans and spray painting swear words on sides of people's houses?
1: I think you might be mixing up like a hoodlum with a turkey. (laughs) (laughs) No, it blocks traffic and is a great source of distraction for everyone doing remote work in Boston right now.
0: I mean, because you live so close to the storied Cambridge University, I can only assume that a, a turkey is like a much more sophisticated, intelligent turkey. <laughs> and like when it's when it's blocking traffic, it's like it's pulling out traffic cones. It's setting up like, you know, a fake, <laughs> fake roadwork a la Ghostbusters 2.
1: Yeah, this was a very unexpected turn, but I'm, I'm impressed <laughs> at this the short number of leaps until we got to Ghostbusters.
0: Hey man, I can get to Ghostbusters in like two leaps. Doesn't matter what topic is. And speaking of turkeys and Thanksgiving, these two turkeys—that's that's you and me, Natalia—we are very thankful for our guests that joined us on episode six of Security Unlocked. First up, we continue our uh, exploration of some of the topics in the Microsoft Digital Defense Report, the MDDR. Donald Keating is joining us to talk about the increase in sophistication in uh, cyber attacks. And so what does that mean to have seen an increase in sophistication in cyber attacks over the last sort of 12 to 18 months and some of the sort of high-level observations that are in the report? That's a great conversation.
1: And we have Michelle Lim on the show today, Threat Hunter at Microsoft. She'll be sharing her path to security and how industry organizations and mentorship have helped her identify new skills and interests within the security space. It's really great to hear how she's leaned on the community to help drive her career and her passions for the cybersecurity realm.
0: And happy Thanksgiving to everyone celebrating in North America. Everyone else, happy late November, early December to you. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Donald Keating. Hi. Thanks for your time. So, Donald, we like to start the podcast by asking our guests to give a, a sort of a brief introduction to themselves. What, what's your job at Microsoft, but sort of what does that look like day to day?
2: So, my role is I'm director of innovation and research for the digital crimes unit. And I generally accept that I have the best job in Microsoft. But what it really means is I sit between a group of people who have regular investigative and analytic jobs and the lawyers who take the cases that we build up and what I consider the data hacking. So we have access to lots of data, uh, lots of crime mechanics, and it's my job really to figure out techniques to unveil the criminality and see if we can assist in attribution or mitigation against that particular crime. So I'm just sort of the new guy on the block when it comes to new types of crime or new patterns in cybercrime.
0: Are you the oracle, if I can use a DC Universe analogy, or do you prefer a different, what's your, what's what's the superhero role that best fits what you do? Um Glue, I'm just in, incredibly inquisitive Glue. <laughs> And
2: I, I, I know very little and it's great having, I, I feel like a three-year-old going around Microsoft asking, what does that do? So yeah, you need to be That's inquisitive in this sort of what Natalia role. and
0: I are, are doing on the podcast. <laughs> 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 that sounds awesome. So Donald, thank you, for, thank you for joining us. In the conversation today, we want to talk about really one of the, the biggest headlines coming out of the recently released Microsoft Digital Defense Report for 2020. So it's a report that came out in September. Tom Burt, who leads... I think the organization you're a part of, Customer Security and Trust, uh, he authored the blog post announcing the report. And sort of the big takeaway, uh, the big headline there was that in this last period, cyber threat sophistication has increased and we've never seen it sort of this sophisticated. And so, you know, we've invited you onto the podcast today to really help us unpack this idea of cyber threat sophistication and the fact that it is increasing. So if I could start with sort of a pretty big question cyber threat sophistication is increasing. You know, what does that mean? How do we think about that? How do we measure that? What does it mean for folks out there to know that cyber threats uh, are increasing in sophistication?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. And, And the way I would, the reason, first of all, the cyber, you know, the sophistication of this cyber crime is increasing is largely that the sophistication of the defense has increased significantly. So as... You know, more workloads run on, on cloud environments. Operating systems become more secure. People become more security conscious. There is, you know, there, there is just more technology in the production area. Criminals, by their nature, need to adapt to that challenge. So in one area in, in you know, traditional, what I would call traditional hacking, where, you know, people are trying to get, gain remote access to a device. They have pivoted away from trying to find zero day exploits. They've actually pivoted to some human engineering. Now, the human engineering may be to get uh, workloads to run, malicious workloads to run on machines to unlock them and allow malware to be installed. So, that's one area that they need to have got more sophisticated just to get around the defenses. But the second area where we see sophistication is uh, cybercrime is now a business. And as a business, there was specialization in that business. So you have very specialized people who will develop malware, ransomware. There's specialization in the distribution of that. People who have droppers, people who have you know networks, botnets, where they will use those botnets to do other things such as proxy attacks on enterprises, proxy attacks on other types of of resources. Even within that, we see a level of automation that we have not seen in the past. So what we would call machine-on-machine activity is certainly evidence of some of the attacks uh, that we see. But even in the the final stages of of a, a cybercrime attack, where it comes to you know, either the, the ransomware, the exfiltration of data, or just the pure stealing of money out of, out of accounts as a result of phishing, the way that money is being mulled has also um, increased. Now, not at the same rate as the sophistication we see in the phishing lures or in the methods of getting people's credentials, because the old saying goes, people used to hack into a computer system Now they log in. A lot of what cyber criminals are doing initially at an attack is getting some set of credentials to get onto the environment and then do what they do best, which is do reconnaissance work across the organization to see more people, get more credentials, and basically map out the network.
1: With that, can you talk us through a couple examples of how these threats have changed or what new emerging trends are coming out?
2: Let me give you an example. So banks obviously need to have a significant amount of protection for people logging in, so remote banking. So there's normally a control that says from a given IP address, there can only be, for a given user, there can only be a certain number of login attempts. Now, if you're like me, that's almost guaranteed to be five login attempts because I can never remember what my password is. But I know it's some combination of something. So it is not unusual for normal behavior to be one IP address, one username, three, four, five login attempts. Therefore, any protections that the bank put in place to make sure that the people who are hacking, it needs to meet that criteria. You don't want to disable the customer. And those controls, very often called shape controls, will limit the amount of traffic coming into the bank from any one IP address. So I have seen a case doing what's called credential stuffing. So that's a single IP address with a single user name and then multiple attempts to log in. So the attack that we saw, the bank had that that control, like how many attempts, it had been set up at over 20 attempts per hour were allowed. And the bank realized they were, being, you know, they were having this credential stuffing attack. So what they did is they reduced the number of login attempts that were allowed. And within about an hour, this particular attack dropped down to 14 attacks per hour. Now, this was not one IP address. There were 400 IP addresses per hour probing the banking system. And as the banking system can change their controls, this network of machines adjust to their controls. They also needed to do one other thing. The bank had controls as to where those IP addresses had to be located. The criminals had organized a botnet to deliver the traffic via proxies only in the region where they would be accepted. So they had done two things. They had modified the rate at which they were probing the username-password combination, and they were coming from the location that they were expected to come from. And in cybercrime, actually, that's becoming quite a common pattern that you're not getting the IP addresses from halfway around the world. The login attempts are coming from the area that you expect them to come from starts to become quite difficult for defenders to defend against. Now, you know, more barriers will be put up and the cyber criminals will figure a way to get around that. But the, the improvement in protections and the more security that is applied requires these cyber criminals to become more inventive in the way they do their thing.
0: So is that, is that rapid agility, that, that ability to respond is that in part the sophistication increase that we're seeing the fact that you know you, to use your example there that those uh, attackers were able to ascertain that the number of permitted tries per hour was was reduced from 20 to 15 and the ability for them to re- to identify that and then adjust their attack that's in some way what, what you're seeing in sophistication increase, whereas in the past, either that wouldn't have happened or it might have taken them weeks or even months to, to make that change?
2: Well, uh, two things. One is they're now using cloud resources to do this. So the attack is not coming from a PC somewhere. This is a, you know, a battery of VMs set up to behave in a particular way. Their ability to deploy VMs at scale you know, give them instruction sets at scale to do these things is a thing that, first of all, it just wasn't available uh, previously. But the fact that they're now using the sophistication of technology that large enterprises use to commit crime is indication to me of increasing sophistication. For instance, there are many automated systems to take down. So there's lots of defenders in the world and they see traffic coming from things that they understand are malicious. There are many, many systems to communicate that threat intelligence across companies, and those things, such as a URL, a malicious URL, can be taken down relatively quickly. But if the domain has the ability to stand up thousands of URLs per hour through automation, it becomes a machine-on-machine war
1: and on top of the speed and scale it seems like there's also sophistication in the level of deception. You noted earlier that now it looks like a common user they can spoof it. So can you talk a little bit more about that? So how does the ability to bypass our detection feed into them being more sophisticated?
2: Well, let me give you an example. The weakest link now certainly in security systems are the humans. So one of the things that most security systems are very good at is recognizing malware when it can see the malware itself so for instance you have a macro embedded in a in a document basically that can be detected relatively simply well if you then encrypt that document and send it through an email the the mechanics of detecting the malicious payload is hampered by the fact that the document is encrypted. But then what you need to do is you need to socially engineer the person receiving the document to enter a password and deploy the malicious payload. And that's where I'm saying people log in rather than hack in anymore. They can assemble enough information about somebody to make an email coming, even from an, an unrecognized sender, to be sort of believable and to encourage a conversation. And it's not a single email. If you're being targeted, like if you're a a CFO or an admin of a system or something, they can be quite persistent over time. They can you know, develop a relationship with that person. And then eventually, bingo, the malicious payload gets delivered. And they can send that in two parts. They can send an email and say, here is the password for the document that I am going to send you. That then, the, the human reaction to that is, okay, now I'm expecting a document from this person. The document comes in and I have the password, that's social engineering. Now, there are lots and lots of lists of username passwords. And what they tell everyone is, do not share passwords across different systems, especially your, your private stuff and your work environment. Well, if you're like me and you have a terrible memory one password is like a really attractive proposition. And you may not go with just one password. You make it really clever and add a one, two, three, four at the end of the password. But for people who are looking at thousands and thousands of passwords and, and millions of passwords because they've been leaked, they can understand the patterns that people use. The example is, if I'm trying to hack someone in, in Microsoft, I'm going to put the word Seahawks somewhere in the dictionary attack because apparently that's what humans do. It's like there are certain keywords that people trigger off and think, oh, nobody will think of Seahawks, <laughs> and I'm in Seattle. So let's say one individual is compromised in a company. That allows them then to log into that, that account and then watch traffic. So what will they do? They don't, you know, someone might change their password. They don't want to be sitting in the traffic all the time, so on the email all the time. So what they will do is they'll go into your email preferences and they will forward emails that contain particular words. Like I've seen an attack where anything that has the word payment, invoice, or bank in the email to forward it out to an external Gmail account. Then... I don't need to get back into that, that account anymore because all of the emails containing those keywords are now being sent to me out on a, an, a disposable Gmail. I get to see all that email traffic. So now I have one half of a conversation. And this is where the sophistication becomes really important. Somebody sends in an invoice, we'll say, for, for payment. Well, when that invoice for payment comes in, now someone has a template of an email that contains an invoice and all of the language. I take the person, the email, who sent that invoice in, and I generate a hamadlef of it, meaning a domain that looks almost identical to the sender. Uh, it, very often, it can be even just a different TLD. So instead of Microsoft.com, it could be Microsoft. GZ, and I can use exactly the same username. So now, what I do is I insert a new mail into the chain. So I have the previous thread because I've been harvesting email from that person, and I now put in my new email and says, "Whoops, this is a correction on the previous invoice. Please, you know, change the the banking information to this email." And we've seen this in in phishing attacks. That sort of thing can be very pernicious. And that is is quite widespread. That behavior of monitoring email, the registration of a homoglyph, and then the conversion of a payment to a different bank account. We see that quite a bit now.
1: So how are we thinking about response to these new threats? What's next for security to combat them?
2: Well, all the time in the background, machine learning. AI is getting smarter and smarter and smarter to protect the assets and that's why in a lot of the cases I talked about the objective is to get the username and password to commit that crime that is to log in not to hack in now once they log in they can do a lot of things they can you know they will deploy remote access tools onto the network to enable them to do a lot of other things, like the deployment of ransomware, for instance, you need access to the system to encrypt everything. But that first step nearly always is the the human element, the engineering the human element to crack it open. And You know, it's a bit like with COVID-19, we're told to wear a face mask, wash our hands, and keep six feet apart. You know, the things that we tell people to do are not new or exciting. You know, make sure you're using multi-factor authentication. Keep unique passwords for each site. Make backups. Like, all of those things, it's it's good hygiene, but for instance, the use of multi-factor authentication I've not verified it myself, but I've seen statistics that say that in excess of 90% of username password compromises would have been thwarted if people had been using multi-factor authentication. So some yeah, of the these,
0: Azure AD team will, will quote 99% or, or greater. It's, it's pretty significant.
2: Yeah. Uh, so it's. You know, that to me is the wearing a face mask and washing your hands of protection from cybercrime. You know, I'd have a small carve-out for nation-state. If the Russians or the North Koreans want to go after you as an individual, you need to tiptoe very carefully. There's all sorts of nastiness that, that can be done to you as an individual. But the reality is, for most targets, it is this people access a username-password combination, they log in, and then they start the progressive, you know, taking over the account to do whatever it is they do, you know, the worst being ransomware. It's not unusual. So, you know, you talk about increasing sophistication. Ransomware was a big thing, and then it took a hit. Why did it take a hit? Because people had deployed ransomware... They were really destructive where they encrypted stuff and there was no keys existing. So suddenly everyone says, well, there's no point in paying a ransom because I'm not going to get my stuff back. So then the criminals had to go and do something else to prove that no, 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 this really we can decrypt your stuff. So it's a kind of a marketing campaign.
1: There's something very comical about the fact that the hackers had to Get people to trust them that they were going to do what they say they're going to do.
2: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, yeah. This is this is business no different from from any other business. You know, you get a bad reputation for something, you got to fix the reputation, or you got to get another way of leveraging people to do what you want them to do. And that's why I say there are people who are specialized in thinking up these social engineering things. They may not be coders at all. They may not know how to turn on a laptop, but they understand how humans work. There's other people then who are geniuses at you know, writing the the malicious payloads, you know, writing the PowerShell scripts, obfuscating the PowerShell scripts so as normal detection won't pick them up. That, you know, this is a whole stack of various things with various levels of sophistication. An increasing sophistication, but the criminal will tend to go to the softest part of the ecosystem to, to make their money.
1: You mentioned that part of the challenge right now is that users are just getting smarter and so the hackers are responding in turn. If our users have been taught you know, cybersecurity education on what is a phishing email, how is the evolution of education going to happen or what's next for education for the users so that they can prepare for this next wave of social engineering attacks?
2: Uh, a whole bunch of interesting things tumble out of that question. The first <laughs> one the, the, the first one is we used to always say go look for mistakes in the phishing email. You know, if, if it if it looks like bad English, it's probably phishing or whatever. I actually heard at a conference that they were sometimes deliberately put into an email to trigger the spiny senses of anyone who was halfway security savvy, and the reason was the person who fell for the fish was then going to be more gullible. They were trying to cut down the amount of traffic that was coming to them, but for someone who would do, you know, I'm talking specifically about, you know, something like tech support fraud, where you'd get a an email that you're computer was about to run out of its license key or it had some horrible, vicious malware on it and you needed to contact this number. They would actually put in sort of deliberate clues to anyone who was savvy. The result then that people who were, were calling that number were going to be much more gullible. So you also have to understand what is the goal of the criminal. And the phishing emails, yes, they are getting much, much more sophisticated. But we as a especially in, in cloud, like when you're looking at O365 Advanced Threat Protection, that description that I just told you, something coming from Microsoft.com and then another email comes in from Microsoft.gz, we actually have exactly that detection running. These lookalike domains where you haven't communicated with that domain before, Advanced Threat Protection will regard that as a high-risk email. So, it's a
0: homoglyph, right, Donald? You homodlyph. mentioned that earlier. That's
2: exactly yeah, a homoglyph. It means something that looks like another thing. So, you know, the classic example are the Microsoft spelt in O, you replace it with a zero. The I, you replace with a, with a one. And this business is, is has become, during the election, for instance, people will look for the registrations of all of the legitimate, you know, vote, Arizona or whatever. It was votecolorado.com, I think. And of course, someone registered <laughs> votecolorado.co, I think it was. You know, it, it looks exactly like you would expect. The The response to something like that, for government especially, you should only be standing up state material on a .gov domain. So there are lots and lots of, of things that we need to educate people. The IRS, for instance, will never ask you to pay your income tax with iTunes cards. You'd (laughs) wonder how, you would wonder how does that scheme ever work? Yeah. But. I've, I've always wondered what the story
0: I've never had one of those phone calls because I, I I really want to hear the logic from the from the person that's trying to tell me like what happened to the IRS as an institution where they now are relying on you know the 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 consumer retail supply chain and the company Apple and that's the that's like the only way they're able to accept funding like I I want to hear that story straight from the from the from the person trying to trying to pull the wool over my ass. one of the
2: things we do actually is we call these people so you know every time we get numbers there was one I hope at home <laughs> we do actually what we call test phone calls so you know if you look at some of the other I know this is not the subject of the podcast but we've recently had big raids in India where ten call centers were raided all running tech support scams you know taking people who thought they had something on their computer and paying you know, subscriptions of up to $300 a year to keep your computer protected. They are unsophisticated crimes, but the sophistication of persuading someone that they do have a problem is sophisticated.
0: Awesome. Well, Donald, thank you so much for your time. Again, the uh, report that we're referencing here at the top of the conversation is the Microsoft Digital Defense Report. It's about 38 pages of fascinating insights into the state of cybersecurity And uh, a lot of the topics that Donald touched on in this conversation are elaborated on in, in much more detail there. We'll put the link in the show notes. Again, Donald, thank you so much for your time. Very happy to be here, thank you.
1: And now let's meet an expert from the Microsoft security team to learn more about the diverse backgrounds and experiences of the humans creating AI and tech at Microsoft. Today we're joined by Michelle Lam, a threat hunter at Microsoft. Well, thank you for joining us, Michelle. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Well, can you start the show by just telling us a little bit about your day-to-day? What do you do at Microsoft? What does your day-to-day look like?
3: Sure thing. So I could tell you about the boring things, which is that, (laughs) you know, I look at a bunch of data and spreadsheets, and I look at them and I say, bad things happened, or everything is fine, and, you know, people are off doing their normal things. But I guess the more complicated story to my work is that, what I look for is patterns in data that might indicate malicious activity. So that might could be anything from human operated ransomware to new malware strains, or even just new pivots in activity in general. So things that we can feed into the rest of the Microsoft ecosystem for security. And threat hunting is a relatively new space, correct? Yes, it is, but I think it's kind of interesting because the concept of threat hunting has existed, but it's always been in other realms in security. So if you think about things like security tracking or security operations centers already looking at alerts and whatnot, or on the idea of incident response, the kind of concept of threat hunting is already baked into a lot of these more traditional like, spheres of security. So, yes, it is new. But I think it's always existed in one form or another.
1: Do you feel like it's become a, a standalone part of security now? So it, it's been baked into these different aspects of security in the past, but now we need it as a standalone function. I think that really
3: depends on, you know, where you're at, you know, what kind of organization you're in. And You know, what are you trying to do with that data? Because it doesn't make sense to go hunting for data in the deep, deep sea of data that exists. If you have data that you need to analyze for a purpose, I think that's what front hunting is really great for. For me, I'm looking for data because I want to figure out, you know, what context can I give it that will be helpful to a customer or to the rest of Microsoft as a whole? I think if you ask that question to anyone else in any other organization, then it's kind of a different story because, you know, what, what part of that data is interesting to you is, is different for everybody, depending on your sector, depending on your organization, depending who you are, even.
0: And, and what is that sort of that focus area for you, Michelle? Do you, how, how do you scope down that near limitless sea of data for, for looking for threats?
3: That's a fantastic question. I think I'm really interested in looking at different techniques that already are well-known in the industry. So things like using PowerShell, using scripts, different ways of disabling security mechanisms. Those are techniques that already exist and can be used in one-off occasions. But what I'm really interested in and when I look for this data is how I can correlate all of these little things that might happen one at a time, you know, in a benign case. But if they happen all together, how can I combine that and say, you know, is this related to a specific activity group? Or is this, you know, is this someone who's doing a penetration test? What sort of things can I identify about how they were executed or how they were launched? And can I make that connection to something else and provide that context elsewhere?
0: Would you mind telling us about your journey into security and then and then how you you found yourself working for Microsoft?
3: Sure thing. So... I guess my story, you know, even entering security really has to start with this journey of me entering tech as a whole. So I, myself, have come from a low-income family and a family of immigrants. And so it was really interesting for me to decide what my career path was going to be as I started this journey of, okay, well, I'm leaving high school. Where do I go? And The direction that I was going to take was kind of in the business direction. And I ended up deciding with the encouragement of a few of the teachers that I'd had at the time to go into computer science. I won't lie. I was a little motivated by money. Who isn't? But when I actually got into college and I discovered what you could really do in the field, I was really intrigued. And I tried to figure out, you know, what does it take to be more technical and what else is out there? So while I was at college, I actually joined a security club. And there were a couple students there that helped mentor me through the process of writing my own code to do very simple things like encrypting or decrypting data. And, you know, that moved on into me actually getting internships and learning how to code and ending up at Apple and working in cryptography and wondering, what the heck am I doing? This is so cool, but I have no idea what I'm doing. So... My entry into cybersecurity was really fueled by this curiosity of like, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm kind of going to continue to do it. And for me, that kind of continued up until my last year of college, when for a lot of low income and first generation college students, there's this very common pattern of it takes you a little bit longer to graduate from college because no one you've ever known has been through this process. And for me, I was. To be frank, I was scared. I didn't know what it would mean for me to go out into the industry. So I wanted to figure out what I wanted to do. And I wanted to figure out what to do in security. So I actually attended a Women in Cybersecurity conference. And I attended a talk by these two women that I really admire in the industry, um, Malware Unicorn and Maddie Stone. And they were super friendly um, and they did this course on reverse engineering and assembly. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. This is, you know, and this is a field where I can, I don't necessarily have to be coding, but I can put a lot of that low level knowledge to use that I've learned in college. And I can figure out what malware does. Like I can solve a problem. So I really took that into consideration as I moved forward. And I ended up teaching a course for my senior project about reverse engineering. I didn't know very much at the time, but that is what I decided to teach. And I also took an internship that was based in incident response and computer forensics at a government laboratory. And it was a super, it was a super weird, you know, internship to have. It's not normal, I think, for a lot of my peers to have that experience of, you know, you go to a government lab and it's a very different experience than what you expect. And you also reverse malware and you figure out what the baddies do. So it's a little hard to explain to your peers, but I absolutely loved it and I figured out, you know, this is what I want to do when I grow up. You know, when I exit college and I graduate, this this is gonna be it. So that's my short story of how I got into security and From there, it was a bit of a pivot before I ended up at Microsoft itself. So after college, I had decided to go down this route of, you know, I can do a little bit of incident response. Okay, I'm going to take a job in incident response. So I moved to Atlanta to take a role in incident response consulting, where I learned a lot And it kind of did a bunch of little things, but I didn't really know if I was advancing myself or learning about the baddies in the way that I wanted to. And it so happened that I attended a conference that's very focused in reverse engineering called Recon, which is in Montreal. And I met a few people that I'd actually met at some other security conferences when I was a little more junior in my college career. And I was like, well, what's going on? And they're like, hey, I'm at Microsoft. I do cool things. You should come here and do cool security things too. And I was like, but are you sure? And they're like, yeah, just just chat. It'll be fine. Long story short, a few months later, I took a job offer from Microsoft for my current team, the Microsoft Experts team. And here I am getting to hunt on and look at really interesting data. So for me, it's kind of been this really interesting journey of exploring and kind of running into this field and trying to figure out, you know, how do you enter it without a ton of mentorship from those around you?
0: If someone listening to the podcast, you know, sees a bit of themselves in, in your story here, what would you recommend for how they, you know, maybe go and find some of those support groups, maybe some of those mentors, maybe some of those industry bodies that could, could help them out early on in career to get some of these experiences? Is there any tips or, or tricks you'd want to pass on?
3: Yeah, so I would say the biggest things for me were building a really strong network over you know, social media. So that doesn't mean like go out and tweet all the time because I certainly don't, but I definitely found a lot of really resourceful things on Facebook groups and Twitter groups even. Some of the internships that I actually applied to and got offers from were things that were shared on a Facebook group for like women in security or women in cybersecurity, I only found out about a lot of conference sponsorships through following different Twitter feeds and seeing if I follow a bunch of these people, someone at some point is going to share some way that I can attend DEF CON or another conference for free or for a reduced rate or some form of sponsorship. So that's been really important for me as I grow my career. And I definitely plan on giving back at some point because I would not be here if it weren't for that.
1: It's interesting because I think for many of the people that we've chatted with, it's been a little bit more of a winding journey to security. But in your case, you you started with CompSci, but you ended up thinking about security already when you were in school. So... How has that experience seem different than some of your other colleagues who have started in other backgrounds and have then made their way to security? Do you feel like it's it's been helpful to know that security was your path when you were in college? How does CompSci factor into it? For sure. So... In a way,
3: I do feel like it's been really helpful for me to join security and find out about security so early on because, you know, I feel like I've been able to learn a lot and be able to put a lot more of, I guess, some of the foundational computer science skills into use, things like learning assembly, which in college, you know, if you're a college student right now and you're taking an assembly course, you're like, I'm never going to write in this super low-level language. Why am I doing this? Well, it so happens that (laughs) when you work in this industry, you kind of want it. Or if you take compilers, compilers is surprisingly useful in security. So I guess what what I think about a lot in terms of my career progression in comparison to some of my peers is that, you know, I do feel a bit of a disadvantage sometimes because I'm still quite junior in my career. I'm maybe two or three years out of college at this point. So there's still plenty that I have to learn. But I do feel that I don't have that traditional security experience. A lot of folks on Twitter and in the traditional security spheres talk about this concept of you need sysadmin experience to be a security person. You need to know all of these things. You need to have worked for 10 years, 15 years in security before you can become a fret hunter. And I'm like, did I make a career mistake? To be honest, I have imposter syndrome about it quite a lot. But if you think about it, everyone kind of has this different take on what they're looking for when they're fret hunting. And what's valuable for me coming from such a junior and such an almost indoctrinated security experience is that, you know, I see these things and I see that they look bad, but I have a different way of relating to the data in which I might say instantly, this is bad. And here's why, or this looks weird. And someone's like, no, you're wrong. And I'm like, well, you're just saying that because it looks like something you've used before. but I've never seen it and it looks malicious. So I think it's all about, there is a joy and a need for us to have different perspectives when we're hunting across data and when we're looking across data. Because everything looks different to everyone, especially in this industry. And it's about, you know, how do you take those arguments and how do you condense it down to, it's not argument, it's us trying to understand the data that's really important.
1: So Michelle, how does AI and ML factor into your role? How do you leverage those tool sets to help our customers? So we actually use AI and ML in
3: several different detections that we use. So whether that be ranging from the antivirus and the AV side of things to things like Windows Defender for Endpoint. So we might be looking at different signals and putting those together in different ways to figure out, you know, if users are performing this type of recon several times in a row, that's malicious. That looks like exploration activity, right? There are other ways that we're looking at using it that might involve, you know, we see this particular activity group perform this activity in sequence. And when we see that, that's an indication to us that there is maybe this activity group is on this machine. And that's really interesting data for us to have, especially as we, hunt and we track that data, because maybe we're not completely sure. The history of what we've looked at in security, I think, has always been very indicator of compromise based. It's been very focused on, we see these hashes, we see these files, we see these IP addresses. But what happens in a world when you can't really use that information anymore to hunt? For me, I'm really interested in when I see this behavior how can I use that? I think that's something where AI and ML is super powerful and super helpful for us as we figure out, like, if I were to move away from a world of IOCs, this is where we would go and this is how we would build a detection in order to actually catch a group in action.
0: So we've already spoken to a few folks on the podcast, Michelle, that are working on behavior-based detections and, and trying to leverage ML and AI to do that. I'd love your perspective on your role as a threat hunter and what makes threat hunting as a process and as a task and as a role, what makes that sort of a uniquely human-based function as opposed to simply, you know, a bunch of algorithms out there running in the cloud?
3: I think there's two different ways to think about this. And one of them is that, well, how did the algorithms get created? You know, Uh you still have to teach the algorithms how to use that data. So, you know, we are working with several... Data scientists to actually figure out how do we feed your algorithm that data that actually says that this is tied to an actor. And you can't do that without actually having a human to hunt across that data and understand what it means. And I think the second component to that question is that, you know, attackers are human too. If they weren't human, then it would probably be a lot easier for us to catch them. And maybe we wouldn't be having this conversation. And maybe I wouldn't be having this job. But because attackers are human, you know, we have to pivot ourselves to align with them. You can't expect machines to catch everything that a human is doing. But if we have humans that are looking at other humans' activity, we might be able to predict and start learning off of what they're doing and build that into our algorithms so that algorithms can assist us to do the heavy lifting
1: while we look for the new things that are happening.
0: I love it. That was a great answer.
1: So this is a bit of a, Big picture question. But uh, it sounds like a lot of your path to security has really brought you to this role to threat hunting. So what would be next for you? Are you interested in continuing to pursue a career in threat hunting? Or are you looking to explore other aspects of security down the line? You know, I think that's a really wonderful
3: question. And it's tough for me to answer, you know, being so early on. And I think about a lot of the questions that you get asked about when you're pretty junior in your career, (laughs) right? Like, I won't lie. Everyone has asked me, what's your dream in five years? What do you Mm -hmm. want to do in five years? And I'm like... Every time you come home for the holidays. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, I don't know. I think about this a lot. And I have to say, you know, I actually do think I'm in my dream position right now. It's a different question of, you know, where I want to take my role and where I w- what I want to do with it, really. Because I love hunting across data. I love finding weird things like, what does this do? And how can I learn what it's doing? And, you know, do what's I What's the weirdest it?
0: thing you found? What's, what's the, what was your, like, you woke up in the middle of the night with the, like, oh, my God, that was so weird. Like, is, has anything stuck out?
3: I mean, I want to say that I could answer that, but I'm not sure that I can actually share it. So it will just have to be a mystery.
0: Oh. <laughs> you, can you can you hint hint at something that doesn't jeopardize any OPSEC?
3: No, that's kind of the joy about being a fret hunter, you know? I don't wanna be I don't wanna share too much, you know? I don't <sighs> wanna it. tip
1: anybody off. <laughs> <laughs> what big problems are you passionate about solving in cybersecurity? Are there any challenges that you're seeing that you'd like to tackle throughout your career? You know, that's such a hard question to answer because I feel like I
3: am tackling a lot of really big problems as it is, you know, fighting the fight against human operated ransomware is huge. But I think if there's anything that really is, you know, important to me and the way that I was raised and how I got into this career, it's about how do we make security an option for those who security might not, you know, have occurred as a first option. How do you make sure that security shows up for those that are underrepresented communities? Because, you know, it's not just a matter of physical security, but cybersecurity is so incredibly important for these communities. How can you make sure that they have access to it when they need it? There are a lot of scenarios that, you know, these communities have to reach out and figure out how they can get support in tough times in in these kinds of situations. And I would love to figure out, you know, know, what does that look like for me
1: and for others? I feel like this comes back to what you said earlier about all the communities that you can reach out to. It's always an aspect of you reaching out to try and find these communities. And I think that proves out that some of these resources are niche or difficult to find right now, and that you have to put the effort into doing it. So just easing that access. For sure. And
3: I think that's something that I've always struggled with is this idea of how do I balance my career, you know, progressing in my career versus helping the communities that I've, you know, come from. So I've done work in the past to volunteer with organizations like Girls Who Code. And we've brainstormed quite a bit internally of, you know, how do we volunteer our efforts to actually teach, you know, underrepresented communities, people of color, women who are, you know, younger, who might not traditionally come from a tech career path. How do we teach them these cybersecurity skills? Because we are constantly running out of cybersecurity professionals and the only way to solve it is to, you know, grow the base of cybersecurity professionals that exist. So how do we teach them and how do we introduce them to this field in a way that makes them feel like they belong? I feel like that's a really important problem to solve, especially because I come from a place where had I not gotten lucky at college and ran into a club full of cybersecurity people, maybe I wouldn't be here. And for me, that's scary to imagine because I love what I do and I love that I get to feel like I'm saving the world. So what does it mean if I teach others to do that? How do I do that? That execution is, I don't know, the idea of that is so interesting to me. And I think there is a lot of impact that I could have.
0: Michelle, are there any organizations you, you want to plug?
3: I would like to talk a bit about Black Hoodie, which is this really awesome organization that was founded by a couple of ladies off of the Twitter security community. It's really a community of women who are teaching these reverse engineering workshops that are meant to be technical and to really teach you about you know technical low-level skills that could get you into reverse engineering or into the security community. And all of the women that I've met from being a part of Blackity have been absolutely amazing. I stay connected to them to this day. And I've even taught a course for them at a previous Microsoft conference, Blue Hat. So if you are a lady listening to this, I would super recommend that you go check them out on Twitter and see if they've got any courses coming up that you might be able to attend because they're free and they're taught by some really, really intelligent women across the security industry.
0: What do you like to do in your free time, Michelle?
3: That's a really great question. Um, my favorite Apart from
0: quarantine hob- <sighs> for eight months.
3: Okay, fair. <laughs> Quarantining is a fantastic hobby. My hobbies are drinking lots of bubbly water, <laughs> playing with my puppies, and fashion. I love fashion. Someday, if I'm good enough, I would love to compete with Jessica Payne and Mallory Unicorn. We'll see if I get there, but... I want to have, like, a security idol fashion competition.
0: As in where you m- make c- clothes? No. What would that look like?
3: I don't know. Like, I guess we could all just, like, attend a security conference and, like, wear ball gowns and, like, I don't know, compete against each other. I'm not <laughs> sure what it would look like.
0: Tell us about your puppies.
3: Yes. I have, I have two puppies, one of which was obtained during coronavirus. Her name is Callie after Callie Linux. Very secure. And our other pup is Nellie, who is a beautiful rescue.
0: Do they have an Instagram account?
3: <laughs> no, I mean, even if they did, I'd like to maintain a little bit of OPSEC, so maybe not. Sorry.
0: <laughs> well, Michelle, we're very happy that you found your path to both security and Microsoft. And uh, thank you for doing the work that you do. And best of luck helping others uh, find their path as well.
1: Thank you. well. We had a great time unlocking insights into security from research to artificial intelligence. Keep an eye out for our next episode.
0: And don't forget to tweet us at MSFT security or email us at securityunlocked at microsoft.com with topics you'd like to hear on a future episode. Until then, stay safe.
1: Stay secure. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, we're talking scumbots with Paul Nelson. Believe me, you're gonna wanna hear this. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.